If you have your Bibles, well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 2, Romans chapter 2. If you're a guest with us this morning, welcome. Our practice here at Fairway is to teach through books of the Bible from start to finish. We're in the book of Romans. We have been for, I don't know, a couple of months, several months. I don't, it's been a while. We're in Romans 2, so this week brings us to verse 16, which is kind of an odd verse when you look at the series of what we have taught. It's almost, it stands alone, and so that's why I didn't include it in last week's sermon, and I'm going to open with it this week, although it's almost like two sermons this week. We'll, we'll begin with verse 16, and then we'll move on to the next set of verses. So... Verse 16 in Romans 2 says this, it's talking about the day, the final day of God's judgment. And it says, on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So last week, here at Fairway, we observed the Lord's Supper. And when we do that, as Southern Baptists, we don't read from a denominational book of prayers like some other denominations do. And I'm not here to condemn that. I'm just saying essentially in Baptist life, it's left up to individual pastors or individual churches to conduct the Lord's Supper as they see that Scripture instructs. And so here, I'll usually read to you from Paul's letter to the Corinthians where he teaches about the Lord's Supper or actually from the Gospels, where the Last Supper occurred. But if we were a good Anglican church, we would undoubtedly read from the Anglican order for the administration of Holy Communion, which I'm sure most of you are familiar with. It's from the Book of Common Prayer of 1662. So if we were doing the Lord's Supper in an Anglican church, we would open with the Lord's Prayer. And then there's a second prayer that comes after that, and here's what it says. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of your Holy Spirit so that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Now, the part of that that really struck me as I'm reading this passage in Romans is the first part. Almighty God, to you all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. The passage we just read in Romans simply says that God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. And it reminds us, both of these remind us of a very important truth, and that is in a world ordered by an omniscient God, there are in the final analysis no secrets. We may have secrets here hiding who we are or what we do from each other, but there will be no secrets on that day when all secrets will be brought to light before God, and that's what Paul is teaching about. I mean, we know the fact that God is an all-knowing God is one of those attributes that we learn at a very early age. 
God spoke uh, about the Jewish people through Isaiah when he said this, For I know their works and their thoughts, Isaiah 66, 18. King David certainly knew this. In Psalm 139, he wrote this about himself. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, and you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. The author of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 13 of Hebrews says this, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. This is one of those reasons that unregenerate people, people apart from Christ, repress their knowledge of God. We learned that back in chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Although God has revealed himself, they don't acknowledge him as God. If God knows all things, as he must do if he is God, he knows us not as we wish to project ourselves, which is often different from the way we actually are, but he does know that exactly, how we actually are. And none of us can really stand the thought of such perfect and penetrating knowledge. It makes us a bit uneasy to understand that there are no secrets from God. All the secrets we keep from each other are known to Him. This fear of being known seems to be common to mankind. It's a characteristic of human nature, and a very famous philosopher noted this. French philosopher, he was an existentialist, he was leading in leading figure in Marxism, and that is Jean-Paul Sartre, born 1905, died in 1980. Now, this is not going to be a philosophy class. If you want to read his writings, you certainly can. He was an existentialist, which essentially leaves no room for God. But you can read him if you'd like. In 1943, he wrote a book called Being and Nothingness. And in it, he tells a story that closely relates to this verse 16 here in Romans, where God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. You see, Sartre rooted man's uniqueness in his being a subject who observes rather than an object who is observed. A subject observes and acts, but an object is observed and is acted upon. The former pleases us, we like that, and the latter disturbs us. And in his book, the philosopher imagines himself as a man standing in a hallway looking through a keyhole into a room and watching another person. As long as he is the observer and the other person is the object observed, then Sartre is content. But suddenly he hears footsteps in the hall and he turns around and he notices that someone has been watching him as he looks through the keyhole at someone else. And now he is no longer content. He's no longer in control. And he is overcome with feelings of shame and fear and guilt and embarrassment. You see, according to Sartre, to be fully human, 
Man must be the ultimate subject rather than an object. But what do we do about God? How can one escape being an object before God who sees and knows everything? Well, for Sartre, his solution was to ban God from his own private universe, that is, to become an atheist. You see, he had been raised a Catholic, but in some of his writings, he relates several stories of various misfortunes in his life that he blamed on God. And his story is both sad and tragic. It's sad because he is mistaken. After one of these, he wrote that, quote, he, which is God, never looked at me again, unquote. But in reality, God never ceased looking at him. God looks on all things, and he sees them perfectly. Actually, it was Sartre who had ceased to look at God. And the story is tragic because by turning his back on God, he turned from the only one person in the Godhead who could rescue him, who could help him. He turned his back on him. So again, his solution to the problem of being seen and being known by God, to being overcome with these natural feelings of shame and embarrassment and guilt, was to banish God from his universe, to become an atheist. Now look, I'm no philosopher. I don't think I'm smart enough to be a philosopher. But it doesn't take a philosophical genius to see here that Sartre was wasting his intellectual energy. If there is a God, as he even indirectly asserted in his writings, then he cannot be so banished, and especially by men. To think that God can be banished from existence by a man is humorous at best. Moreover, if God is omniscient, as he must be if he is God, not only has he seen all evil and all deeds but he remembers them. And one day, he will produce them for exposure and for judgment. And this is what Paul writes about when he says, on that day when God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus, there in verse 16. But let me ask you a question. What do you think these secrets are? I mean, they can't be things you've done in secret because... We've already been told that God will judge you according to your deeds. We already know that he knows all the things that you've done. So what are these secrets that God is going to judge? Well, the truth is he is able to see into our hearts what others cannot. And in this case, what we're talking about is our motives. The secrets that will be judged. David gave this counsel to his son Solomon in 1 Chronicles chapter 28. And you, Solomon, my son, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and with a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. So we've already read from Psalm 139 where David wrote about himself and how God judges the innermost parts of his thoughts and his heart there as well. And in Jeremiah, in chapter 17, we read, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Well, what if I told you that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus repeated a phrase three times 
that sort of parallels this thought of God knowing our motives, of God judging our secrets. I'm not going to put these on the screen for you because they're just very quick references, but in Matthew 6, which is where the Sermon on the Mount is located, verse 4 says, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 6, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Verse 18, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Each of those three phrases, talking about your giving and your praying and your fasting, Jesus goes straight to the idea of your motives. And is it to be seen by others? Or is it as a service to your God? And he assures you that God knows that even if you do it in secret, the Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, we all know that there is such a thing as relative human goodness. Many unbelievers live on a very high moral plane. And we discussed that principle last week. But that is not the kind of goodness that satisfies God. You see, anything that is done from a motive other than for His glory and is done in any power but His own is not the kind of goodness that satisfies God. Whether we do things to impress others or whether we do them to react to peer pressure or maybe to alleviate feelings of guilt maybe just to feel better about ourselves. Our motives matter, and anything that is not done for God and through His power is basically sinful and unacceptable to Him, no matter how outwardly self-sacrificial they may seem. So in this section of Romans, let's take verse 6 through verse 16 that we just read. Paul has taught us that a redeemed life will produce holy living, and that a life that reflects no holy living, has no claim on eternal life. We've learned that right living, which can only come from right motivations, is the God-given evidence of salvation. And lack of right living is just as certain evidence of lostness. So I want to take a few minutes this morning to look at the next section of Scriptures here in Romans chapter 2. I'll have to to be quick, we're just going to touch lightly on it due to the time we have left. But I want to go ahead and start it because it addresses what I believe will be a common excuse on Judgment Day. That people, when they appear before God, will use the excuse of religion. Let's read this passage. And again, we're just going to kind of dip our toe into its truth this morning. Chapter 2, we'll pick up with verse 17. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, 
do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed, blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. All right, let's look at that. It should be obvious so far from our study of Romans that nearly everything that we have said thus far replies, or applies to all men and to all women regardless of whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or a man or a woman. And by that I mean that it applies to ourselves, to us. Apart from the supernatural work of God in us through the Holy Spirit, everything we've talked about applies to us. Regardless of our achievements, of our high moral standards, maybe even our outward position in life, we are all in exactly the same position. The same position that is described in Romans 1, we've suppressed the knowledge of God. We've launched ourselves along this path of moral and spiritual decline that that chapter describes. And we have this propensity to condemn others for what we ourselves do, which is what we see in chapter 2. But we as people are very great at making distinctions, aren't we? Particularly if they're to our advantage. Some of these self-seeking excuses are what we've covered and what we're going to cover today. The first one I think we looked at was that of the moralist in chapter 2. Those who admit that there are indeed pagans, like Paul described in chapter 1. But we know better. We have standards. The new distinction, the one we're going to look at today, is made by individuals who consider themselves to be religious. So far in chapter 2, Paul has shown that both the moral Jew and the moral Gentile will be brought before God's judgment at the end of time and will have no basis for any sense of well-being and security apart from Christ. And so now he's going to focus exclusively on the Jews, the covenant people of God. In Paul's day, these were the religious people. They had far greater light, greater blessing than the Gentiles. But as the apostle is now going to point out, this greater privilege brought with it greater accountability to God, not less, as most of them probably supposed. So today, modern-day Christians, us, we could look at this category of people as maybe some ardent fundamentalist or any church-going Protestant, really regardless of denomination, maybe even a devout Catholic or some other religious individual. So let's imagine for a moment this religious person, what he or she might be thinking after hearing Paul's teaching so far in Romans 1 and 2. Paul has described the pagan morality of the day. We read it ourselves, and it was appalling. See if this sounds about right. This person could say to Paul, I'm glad you've spoken as you have, because things are in a terrible state today. The divorce rate is up. Our political leaders lie to us. Nobody wants to work. The schools are breaking down. Crime and prostitution and gambling and human trafficking and any other vice you can think of are increasing. Moreover, if God is a God of, judge, of justice and of truth, as you say He is and we are supposed to believe that He is, He will certainly judge all of these wicked people quite severely, will He not? So preach to them. 
the drug dealers, the crime bosses, the politicians, no doubt will profit from your gospel. But leave me out of it. I'm a very religious person. My religious commitments exempt me from your blanket condemnations. I've been a church-going person all my life. I've been baptized. I go to communion. I give money to support the church. Can't you just hear those kind of arguments being made? Paul replies that these are genuinely good things. We shouldn't just ignore them. But he would then state, you still need the gospel. And they may say, why? And it is because God is not interested in outward things alone. Things like church membership and the ordinances and stewardship, but rather what's within. We remember in the selection of David as the next king of Israel, he made the famous quote, 1 Samuel 16, 7, that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So that was sort of a contemporary version of Paul's teaching, maybe. Now, in Romans 2, starting in verse 17, we find the Jew, this religion, religious person's, uh, person of Paul's day, to make some very important claims. So we're going to go through those. First, we're going to look at four claims about their special advantages. We can call them spiritual advantages that the Jewish person has. And then we'll look at privileges, religious privileges that come from those advantages. So we'll put those up on the screen. Here are the claims that the Jews say they have, the spiritual advantages of the Jewish people. And this is from verses 17 and 18. First, God has given us His law. The second thing they claim is an advantage that He has entered into a special relationship with us. Verse 17 says they boast in God. The King James says something like, they maketh their boast of God. So they're not boasting that God is great. They're boasting that they are the people of God. Third, because we have been given His law, we know His will. And then the fourth claim that they will make is that we approve only the most excellent of human moral standards. Those are the four things we see in those two verses that the Jewish person, the religious person, the claim that they would make to Paul. But then we also see some privileges that come from those claims. This is in verses 19 and 20. Those privileges are to be a guide to the blind, to be a light for those who are in the dark, to be an instructor for the foolish, and to be the teacher of infants or of children. These are the privileges that come from those four advantages that we just read. So to evaluate these properly, we must begin by acknowledging that as far as they go in and of themselves, each one is absolutely true. The Jewish people are not lying here when they make these claims. So many of our contemporaries would regard someone that said these things as being arrogant or prejudiced because they would believe that no other religion has any special claim to truth, and so for you to say that is arrogant. 
But no Christian can think like this, nor any true Jew. We have to believe that we have a special claim on the truth of God's Word. You see, the Jew in Paul's day boasted of having received a unique and special revelation from God. First, by Moses on Mount Sinai in the law. And then secondly, through writings of kings and chroniclers and prophets, what we would call the Old Testament. This was the first claim that we talked about. The first advantage was God has given us his law. And the Jew was correct when he said that. In fact, Christians as well as Jews receive the writings of the Old Testament as the very words of God. Not as mere human inventions. Peter, the Apostle Peter, describes it like this in 2 Peter 1. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Jews claimed that they received his law was true. But the second claim they make is also true, and that is that God had entered into a special relationship with the Jews. It began with Abraham, and from Abraham's day onward, Jews enjoyed the special advantage of a covenant relationship with God. Jesus taught about this in his teachings with the Samaritan woman. You may remember John chapter 4 is where he encountered her when he went to the well for water. And when he touched upon the topic of sin in her life, namely the man she currently was living with, she immediately tried to change the subject to some theological discussion. Just like many people do today when you confront them with the sin in their life and their need for the gospel, they will quickly change the subject, won't they? The woman asked, a question about the proper place for worship of Jesus. Specifically, she wanted to know if it was Jerusalem where the Jews claimed was the place to worship, or if it could be possible that it was Mount Gerizim, which is what the Samaritans believed, and that's covered in verses 19 and 20 of John 4. And Jesus answered that question in a couple of ways. First, he opened her eyes to a new era of worship, which Jesus himself was bringing in, in which case it was neither solely Jerusalem nor Mount Gerizim where people could worship. Rather, Jesus said in verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. But then secondly, Jesus addressed the specific question that she raised that is forever settled issues like the authority of the Old Testament and the priority of the Jews in spiritual matters of the day. In verse 22, just before that recent quote, he said this, you worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. So it follows that Until the day of Pentecost, although salvation was available to Gentiles, the gateway of it was through the Jews, through Judaism. That was the assembly of God's people. So they claimed that special relationship with God, and it was true. The third claim was also true, and that is 
and that they claim that because they possess this true revelation of God in what we would call the Old Testament, they, the Jews, really did know God's will. And I would add, at least they had the proper foundation for knowing God's will. Much in the same way you who possess a Bible have the proper foundation today for knowing God's will. But just owning a Bible is no guarantee of that. And when verse 18 says, and know his will, the word will there doesn't refer to some kind of secret, hidden counsels of God, which it seems to be what everybody wants to know. But obviously that's not what it means because the hidden counsels of God are indeed hidden. There are things that God has chosen not to reveal to people. But rather what it refers to is the revelation in Scripture of what, as one commentator puts, is agreeable to him, what he requires them to do, what he commands, what he prohibits, what he approves, and what he rewards. That is what they knew. That is the will of God that they knew through this revelation from God, what we call the Old Testament. And there are examples of this given in the next verses, verses 21 and 22. Three specific commandments are cited. It says, if then... Uh, You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now those may be confusing to you. We'll get to those three commandments in just a moment. Those are just examples of the commandments that the Jewish people had that the Gentiles did not. Finally, the Jew was correct in his claim that because he was instructed in the law, he had a valid basis for approving what was excellent or what was superior in human moral standards. And you could say that he had a yardstick or a measure by which human behavior could be measured in God's law. So out of these spiritual advantages, there was an equally impressive set of privileges And these are set forth to us in somewhat metaphorical language. And that's the second list we looked at in verse 19. It says, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, uh, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. That's how the Jew saw himself. And so he was. The knowledge of the true God and the way of the true God were indeed a light in really what was a dark labyrinth of pagan religions. However, knowledge of God and the way of God was not enough because as we've already seen, God judges according to truth and not according to appearances, according to what men and women actually do rather than according to their mere professions. So at this point, Paul brings forth these three examples that we mentioned, these three commands of this superior way of the Jewish people and that comes from being the recipient of this law of God. He speaks about the eighth commandment of the Ten Commandments, the seventh commandment, and then a statement that sort of embraces both the first and the second So very quickly, we're going to look at these. First, we have the Eighth Commandment. Just to remind you, if you don't have those memorized, the Eighth Commandment's in Exodus 20, verse 15, and it says, you shall not steal. 
This was part of Jewish instruction that was properly passed down to others. But Paul asks, did the Jew himself steal in verse 21? So again, we've looked at these verses as if they are dealing with Jews exclusively, but I probably need to remind you again, lest you get too comfortable there in your seat, that we have to break away from that limited view and remember that these verses today could speak to all kinds of religious people, church-going, Presbyterians, Baptists, Catholics, whatever. It is a charge against the Orthodox. So I ask, we who preach against stealing, do we steal? Now, you know, I hope, that the idea that we should not steal is pretty common. Everyone seems to agree with that, but it is also commonly broken, that commandment to not steal. We shouldn't think that we've kept this commandment just because we've not burgled someone's house. There's so many ways we steal. We steal from an employer when we don't give them our best work. When we overextend our breaks or leave early, don't put in the time for which we are paid. We steal if we waste company products or waste company time by doing personal matters on that time if that's not allowed where you work. We steal if we sell something for more than it's worth. We steal when we borrow something and we don't return it. You could even say in somewhat of a figurative way that we steal from ourselves when we waste things like our talents and our time and our money. So after citing this eighth of the Ten Commandments and saying, hey, you claim to know this, but do you do it? Paul moves backwards to the seventh commandment and asks, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery in verse 22? What are we to say to this question? Particularly if we live in this country, the country where adultery and fornication and a variety of other types of sexual sin are not only excused, but sometimes encouraged and applauded. What are we to answer in view of the revelation of sexual sins in very prominent public people, including very recently former president of the Southern Baptist Convention, who, by the way, has been welcomed back into the pulpit? What are we to say in view of Jesus' teaching about the seventh commandment where he says it has as much to do with your thoughts and the intents of our hearts and not just with our external actions. According to Jesus, in Matthew chapter 5, lust is the equivalent of adultery, just as hate is the equivalent of murder. I mean, the biblical standard is purity before marriage and fidelity afterward. There is hardly an area of our culture that is in such opposition to God's standards. I mean, media. The media uses the lure of sex to push materialism and to glamorize the pursuit of pleasure. I remember a day when television was only a concern in our household growing up in in the context of the shows that we watched. But today, it's naive for that to be your only concern because the commercials 
are just as lurid. Sex-filled advertisements are there four times an hour. The shows are bad enough. Movies are even worse. At one time, people would defend high sexual standards even if they didn't quite keep them themselves. But today, we don't even hold to the morality. Today, it's just if it feels good and you want to do it, then do it. That's the cry of our age. That's the practice of the great majority of people. So Paul would say, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? The third of Paul's examples of preaching one thing and doing another, which is what he's been doing, is a reference to the first and second commandments. In verse 22 there in Romans 2, he says, You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Now, it's not as easy to understand this question as it was to understand the first two, because there's some problems here. First, the second half of the sentence doesn't match the first half, does it? At least not in the same way that the first two examples did. When Paul says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? He's charging the religious person of the day with doing exactly what they say others should not do. In other words, the religious person says, don't steal, yet he steals. So also with the second example, the religious person says, do not commit adultery, but he commits adultery himself. But in the case of the third example, the parts don't match. The prohibition would be, do not worship idols. But Paul's accusation is not worshiping idols, it's what we might expect, but rather sacrilege or robbery of temples. The second problem is even more puzzling because so far as we know, the Jews did not rob temples. I mean, does this mean that they were robbing God of His proper honor, the honor that is due Him? Does it refer to the trafficking in offerings, such as what was done out in the court of the temple, remember that Jesus condemned when he cleared the temple? Does it refer to Jews possessing maybe as objects of art items that had been taken from heathen temples? Does it refer to actual temple spoilage, stealing actual offerings from the Jewish temple? Well, it's hard to say what this means, although there are arguments for every one of those that I found. What we can say is regardless of the way the ancient Jews may have broken the first and second of the Ten Commandments, we certainly understand how we have broken them, even the most religious people among us. You see, the first command is a demand for exclusive and zealous worship of the true God. In verse 3 of Exodus 20, back to the Ten Commandments, it says, You shall have no other gods before me. To worship any God, but the biblical God is to break this commandment. But I don't mean by that that we have to worship some clearly defined God, such as Zeus or Apollo or something like that, or even other religious gods such as Allah or Buddha to violate this commandment. Those, of course, would be violations, 
But those are not the only ones. We break it whenever we give some person or some object or some worldly aspiration the place in our lives reserved for God, the first place in our lives. Often, the substitute God is ourself or the image of ourself that we wish to have. It can be things like success or fame, material affluence. Maybe power over others is our God. To keep this first commandment would be, as John Stott says, to see all things from his, that's God's point of view, and to do nothing without reference to him, to make his will our guide and his glory our goal, to put him first in thought, word, and deed, in business and leisure, in friendships and career, in the use of our money, time, and talents at work and at home. You see how that's much more than limiting it down to who do you sing to on Sunday mornings in the worship time. It's who is first in your life. Now, the second commandment, going to verse 4 in Exodus 20, says this, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is under heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, so when we come to this commandment, because God has already prohibited the worship of other gods in the first commandment, many people believe that this, this commandment, the second one, refers more to the manner of our worship than the object of our worship. I mean, it is true that in there he mentions any likeness of anything. So that could refer to worshiping other things. But most believe that this mandates for us imageless worship. We are not to use statues or pictures or anything else as an object of our worship, even if they are intended to represent the one true God. This means for us to worship God, rather than being able to look at a picture or a statue, we need to learn what God is really like fully through His Word so that we can increasingly worship Him as the one, the only God that He is. But surely you understand, if you remember, if you've been here through these sermons, this is exactly what we said back in chapter 1 that man refuses to do. It says in verse 21, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You know, it goes on to say the things they did worship were in the image of other stuff. So when Paul comes to the end of this paragraph, which describes this true state of the orthodox or the religious person of his day, he quotes the Old Testament to show that this is verse 24, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is always the case when ostensibly devout people violate the very standards they proclaim. God's name is shamed. 
And that's what Paul is saying. It's a terrible thing. As I close, I'm going to ask our musicians to return to the stage. There's something even more terrible than that. And that is, for these very same people, for these religious people, to continue down this same path, the wrong path, supposing that they are on their very best dealings with God just because they are religious, when actually they are like the pagans around them on a swift journey to destruction. In discussing this passage about the Jewish people, William Barclay says this, to a Jew, a passage like this must have come as a shattering experience. Can you imagine someone with the history and lineage of, lineage of the Jewish people being told, you say this, but you do it anyway. You think you know everything, but I'm more interested in what you're doing. It was a shattering revelation to them, and he's right. I would imagine it is shattering. But it's not only for the Jew that a passage like this should be shattering. It should be shattering to us all, particularly if we find yourselves thinking that your case is somehow different from other persons because of your religious leanings. If you have ever been trusting simply in your baptism, maybe you come from another denomination and you're trusting in your confirmation. Maybe you're trusting in your church membership or your knowledge of the Bible or doctrine or maybe your generous stewardship. Maybe you're just trusting in your Christian upbringing. I came from a Christian family. If you've been trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ and his death upon the cross in your place, then throw that out of your mind completely. Whatever it is on which you've been trusting, any of those things, abandon it, stomp on it, grind it down, dust off the place where it was, and then turn to Jesus Christ alone and trust him only. Let's pray together.